Welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. Hi, it's Nick. And for those who don't know me yet, I'm Open Research Advisor based in the library here at the University of Leeds. You're joining us in season three of the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. I'll be speaking to colleagues from both the University of Leeds and from other universities and organisations about open research, what it is, how it's practised in different disciplines and how it relates to research culture. If you haven't already, you can catch up with season one, which was an introduction to the podcast and to my co-hosts, and season two with my colleague Tony Bromley, who was in conversation with a number of presenters from the REDS Conference of 2022. That's the Researcher Education and Development Scholarship International Conference held in Leeds. But now I'd like to introduce my guest for today, my colleague, Dr. Dorka Tamas, who's been working on a series of open research case studies here at Leeds. Dorka has recently been awarded her PhD from the University of Exeter, examining the presence of the supernatural in Sylvia Plath's poetry. She's presented in several conferences and symposia and is a co-founder of the Sylvia Plath Society. So hello, Dorka, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for uh, inviting me to talk here. Um, and now, Dorka, despite having worked with you for a while, since about May, I think, is, yes. is it May? Yes. We've actually only met once, very recently and very briefly, on a bit of a flying trip to Leeds. So you're actually visiting where you've to take part in an event at York. So maybe tell us a bit about that. that. But it was a bit of an epic journey because you're not actually based in Leeds. You had to come quite a long way. Yes, uh, yes I'm based uh, in the southwest. Um, so it was a long train journey. Um, I was invited uh, by the University of York's Reproducibility Network team to present in their, um, it was it was an event on open research for early career researchers. And they saw me talking before in a similar event that Nick invited me to, to present on open access uh, monographs. And so I ended up talking to uh, a very different audience, similar people who, who are at, people who are at the similar stage as me, uh, being early career researchers, um, and my presentation was focusing on open access monographs for uh, ECRs. Mm-hmm. So you're becoming a bit of a, an expert in open research, is that fair to say? I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I think I definitely gained uh, a lot of knowledge of open research uh, through this job. Um, and, you know, it's it's such a vast area and, and it's ever-changing and developing, so it's it's hard to keep track of it, to be honest. So maybe you can tell us a bit about your role here, as I've just introduced you doing this this project for us on the on case studies. It's fair to say when you started as, as back in May, um, your knowledge about open research was was perhaps a bit limited at that point. You've you've learned a lot since then. Yes, definitely. Um, I published an open access um, journal article. Um, kind of, uh, I think it was last year it was published. So I was familiar with the concept of open access uh, because my university paid for a gold open access, which was very great, you know, but um, that was all my knowledge really of open research um, because I work in humanities and English. Um, data is not something I come across or so not traditional quali- quantitative, quantitative data. So um all of the other aspects of open research, like the open data, open code, 
um, print prints was not something I had any knowledge of really. Mm. And sadly, it was not even a training in my uh, PhD education, which I think it is doing well that it's really incorporated now into uh, PGR training. Yeah, so I mean, you you mentioned your so your background is in English, and I said at the at the top though. So your PhD was in the supernatural in the Sylvia Plath Sylvia Plath poetry. I'd perhaps yes. give you an, an opportunity. I know you like talking about Sylvia Plath. If you want to just tell us a little bit about that research and your PhD, and and uh, you're working on a monograph, I think, is at the moment, aren't you? Yes, um, so I'm trying to turn my uh, PhD thesis into a monograph, which is a slow process, but hopefully. Um, in a couple of years' time, you will you will see it. Um, yeah, and Silva Plath was an American 20th century poet, and she tragically died very young. But my work was looking at the different ways in which her poetry engages with this umbrella term supernatural, which you know included um, Cold War American McCarthyism, fairy tales. Uh, including the early modern witch hunt, including also some religious imageries, including narratives from classical sources such as uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses and all other aspects and how her poetry is using these um, the theoretical framework of the early modern witch hunt particularly and how her writing informs us a lot about the Cold War period and the post-war period. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so obviously that is, you've already alluded to the fact that, that, you know, that's English, obviously, and poetry, which we wouldn't necessarily associate perhaps with data, as you'd said, and you didn't really have much training around open research, so you're aware of open access. Um, Do you think, in retrospect, you would have benefited from more training around open research through your PhD? Definitely. Um, I think... Something that I, you know, I never thought about my uh, research material as data. And when I was working with archives, because I forgot to mention, I was working with a lot of archival materials, especially during the pandemic. These were all digitized archives um, that I had access from various uh, universities, mainly from the Smith College um, in the U.S., uh, so I did not have a good organizational system. I did not have a good research data management um, background. And now I'm sort of suffering the consequences of that because my my files are just sort of scattered with not real actual metadata, just very badly named files. So this is something I definitely would have benefited. Uh, and something that actually um, came up recently in one of the open research case study interviews I was conducting with somebody, uh, this person mentioned that um, something that he would like to see more included in PGR training is um, helping people to understand uh, sort of the process of publication and also Mm -hmm. where to publish and what kind of deals the university has with publishers. um, Because I know that Leeds has yeah. Uh, these contracts with certain publishers um, that you can publish open access. So that would be something I think that PhD students and me myself as well would have benefited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do have workshops. So we do run workshops um, in the library, um, but it is a such a big area, just open access, let alone open research. I mean, already you've mentioned a few 
different aspects. So you mentioned preprints, and we've talked a little bit about open data already, which we can expand on. Um, and obviously, these are things that I guess that you've picked up through the course of this project, the Open Research Case Studies project. So perhaps tell us a little bit about your role here at the university, albeit remote, as we've said, you're, you're based on the south coast, and 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 some of the other things that you sort of learned through that through that project around the different practices associated with open research. Yeah, sure. Um... So I started working on the open research case studies uh, with Chris, um, a colleague, um, in May, and we sort of um, distributed the faculties uh, among ourselves. And I was paying attention. I was conducting. Which is, sorry to interrupt. Is it, is it, we've got eight faculties at Leeds. Is that right? Yes. Um, um, it's yes, quite a big university. Yeah. I'm just making the. the, the... Yes, we, we did have a, a lot of faculties and we had also a couple of other topics, such as I was focusing on open education. Mm -hmm. And I also did a case study with um, the Leeds is a special collection um, in terms of, you know, archives and digitization and accessibility. But um, I learned a lot, especially about STEM subjects and how open research is relevant in other fields that are, you know, not at all like mine. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting to see how certain fields are so advanced and certain practices have been, you know, part of their research culture for a very long time. They might have not called it open data or, you know, open mm -hmm. access or something, but it was something part of the research culture just because their work is so collaborative. And I think particularly research or researchers that have to work together in a lab setting or work on courts together, it is essential to be transparent and open and follow uh, certain protocols as well. But for other researchers like me, I guess, who works alone on a long research project, um, it's very it's very different and other parts are not too too relevant like yeah like the mentioned open data mm. i don't work with other people's um data however some people might can consider the poets the the poems i worked with as as a kind of data yeah well that's so terminology is interesting i mean i have a background in english as well and the the, the sort of joke that i always make working in a big research intensive university is, you know, with a degree in English, it means I can read, you know, that's my sort of only skill really. So when you're dealing with different disciplines and different expertise, that can be quite challenging. So poetry is data, you know, often we talk about data and people do think of it as spreadsheets of numbers in the STEM context, but as you say, that can be a wider range of materials in, in different, different disciplines. Uh, I wonder what Sylvia Plath would make of us uh, regarding her poet. Poetry is data though. Do you think she would have, um, Appreciate I, I think she would find it very peculiar and probably would laugh about that. <laughs> and um, so you, you've obviously been interviewing different people around the university. So how many sort of case studies have you done between you, you and Chris, would you say? Do, do you know the number at the moment? Um, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's probably close to 60. So it's between like 50 to 60, I think. Yeah, so a good number. I mean, I've seen a few of them, and just for anybody that is listening, you can access some of these case studies on the blog. We're still working on them, aren't we, Dorka? I know you're still working with Chris, and we'll release them over time as, as we get more together. And uh, have you done any in English, um, for example, in your own discipline? 
Yes, I did uh, one uh, with uh, with a researcher, uh, Bridget Bennett. Uh, this was actually one of my first case studies I done. Uh, so I was very new to the to the whole, um, you know, interviewing people part as well. Um, and it was very interesting to see because her research is also quite different to mine. And uh, she was talking a lot about the how we can make research outputs um, publicly available, not in terms of just academic dissemination, but I know that she was working with UNIC together um, to write a Wikipedia entry. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also she was mentioning other sort of out, outputs from her research, like um, not just conferences, but radio talks, uh, blog, all these other outputs uh, for public engagement that could be more accessible, I think, for uh, for the general public. Yeah, and no, I did work with Bridget on um, on, as you say, a Wikipedia article, and uh, we I will actually be speaking to a Wikimedian as part of this podcast series as well. So, uh, a colleague called Martin Poulter. So, yeah, we'll talk about Wikipedia and Wikimedia more generally in more detail later on. Um, just, to, to, I'm just thinking back to when you said at the beginning. So you you mentioned reproducibility, which is obviously a play on words for the Reproducibility Journal Club. And again, there'll be um, links in the show notes if if people are unaware of reproducibility. But the concept of reproducibility, uh, reproducibility. I, I can't say the word now because it's sort of uh, I'm conflating it with reproducibility. But the concept of reproducibility and how and whether research and science can be reproduced. And so again, that's not perhaps something relevant to English in the same way as the STEM, STEM subjects, I guess. Um, yes, that's very interesting. I guess in my specific area, it is it is very hard to conceive. But I was just having uh, an interview the other day. Uh, did a, an interview with um, someone who is more involved with digital humanities, and uh, he works in translation studies and he does a lot of textual based analysis and he was talking about rep- reproducibility in the humanities and the way in which he understood it um he gave this very good example which will be in the case study i write up uh, with um, serge sheroff his name which was uh, his example was that if someone is uh, analyzing a text and looking at for example um if this text is a blog post, is this text uh, a news article? Is this text um, uh, a form of propaganda? What what sort of text is it? So, and mm-hmm. then we can use definitions for each of these concepts of what kind of medium is this, and then we can base the textual analysis on that, and then we can sort of reproduce that could be reproducible yeah. by other researchers as well. If we have exact definitions, the way in which we conduct our textual based analysis, which uh, is, you know, it's it's a nice idea and, and it's interesting. Um, my uh, my area where um, I analyze poems and the whole idea is that this is my reading. Yeah. And there could be multiple meanings. Um, I think reproducibility is, is, uh, is a very um, difficult concept, but I think um, I'm sure that that will be a way in which we can make that useful. And did you um, discuss that with colleagues in the other disciplines? I mean, what was your process for these case studies? Did you have a sort of standard process, whether you were talking to somebody 
in English or in chemistry or, or I know you didn't do chemistry, but you know, in, in terms of different disciplines, how how did you actually approach the project? Yes, we did. Uh, we did have a lot of questions that were sort of set questions for all people. Um, I like to to start uh, the interviews with general questions, like asking them, "What does open research mean to you? Where do you deposit your work? Um, does open research inform your teaching practices?" Um, and then going into different aspects of open research that are relevant for the particular researcher and the particular um, area of study, for example, preprints. Some for some people that would be quite relevant and very much the thing that they they do in the field for some people it's not something they engage with um and I would ask questions about their attitudes towards open access about what kind of day-to-day work with about uh, pre-registration that's that tended to be for me something that only one or two one or two person talked about um so maybe so I'm just perhaps you could describe what pre-registration is because I'm uh, you know as you say did you encounter colleagues that hadn't heard of that term didn't know what that was yes actually quite a lot of people did not hear of need not hear about uh, pre-registration so pre-registration comes from uh, the field of psychology it's basically helps you to make your research process transparent and accountable so you would pre-register your protocol and methods of data collection in a particular website they have certain repositories and websites where you can uh, upload your um, pre-registrations, uh, as, as I mentioned, like the protocol. And then once you do your data collection and data analysis, um, people can also read your pre-registration and protocol and held, held your research accountable for for that you were doing what you said that you are doing. Yeah, and it's because, again, you know, pre-registration is something that I've learned about relatively recently. And as you say, it's certainly not it's come from psychology and I know I've spoken to a lot of colleagues in different disciplines who can see how it would apply to their research but I think it's got a long way to go in terms of um you know application in in other disciplines yeah actually I talked to somebody uh, not long ago who said um he was talking about pre-registration and how it's really relevant in their field in terms of ethical approval that they need to gain for doing medical research and he mentioned that once he found a discrepancy between the pre-registration and the actual research of, of, of an author, and he contacted with the, with the editors of the journal about that, mm. and then he got a complaint from the author. Oh, right. So was there any resolution to that that you were... Yeah, I mean, he, he said that he's happy about it, that he got a complaint, because at least it means that it worked yeah. and something happened, and it wasn't just um, covered up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that and again, that's exactly the point, isn't it? In terms of transparency and making that entirely transparent. Yeah. Um, so we've mentioned some of the components of open research that you've you've sort of come across. You know, pre-registration, so preprints, and again, preprints are versions of papers that are before they go through peer review. Yes, um, they have been submitted for journals and. They haven't been peer reviewed yet, so there are different repositories. A lot of people mentioned uh, archive, mm-hmm. um, archive.org, in which seem to be a place where people put up preprints. There are different versions of this, uh, like bioarchive, which is specific for the field of biology. There's med archives, 
specific for for medical sciences and um we talked about open data but can i suppose one of the issues that we come across is that not all data can be open i mean do you find people concerned about i mean medical is a good example you know where data about people's medical records can't necessarily be open was that something that that came up um I talk to people who work with human data who actually produce um, open data sets. It uh, obviously has to be anonymized and completely remove any any data that can re-identify a person. But um, if it's um, so, so there are lots of people I talk to who deposit open data sets or use other people's open data. There are people I talk to who do not work with human participants and therefore they don't have any ethical concerns really um, about their data sets being mm. open. Um, I think it is just a matter of um, you have to do it right, which involves a lot of work. And lots of people rather bring up um, the idea of making useful metadata so that other people can use it. And that's a long and timely process to, to do. Yeah. And um, did you get much of a sense through these uh case studies of of what the barriers are to practicing open research um i mean i'm assuming you know i think there are barriers um would you say to people actually practicing this still yes um i think there are barriers there is numerous barriers uh one thing i guess it's not sort of a barrier but i think this is important to mention that there are lots of people who would who practice open research, but they are not necessarily familiar with the with the terminologies. So um, I think just getting that communication across can be challenging in itself to to almost educate researchers in in this something because I think um, you know researchers do so many things and involved in so many uh, projects and and teaching as well. So even just um, having the right terminologies um, for people. Because uh, sometimes I would approach people for interviews and they would say, I don't do open research. And then they clearly have open access publications and mm -hmm. all other things. So I think it's uh, one challenge, as I said, is, is the terminology and having that communication for researchers. I think another aspect is... Um, having uh, because obviously there are there are a lot of fundings for uh, now for example open access um uh, that is now by the UKRI uh, journal articles have to be open access uh, which are UKRI funded and from 2024 monographs have to have to be also open access but i think the question also comes in what happens with those people who do not have access to these funds particularly um practice staff and early career researchers um, or other research um, that um, I also talked to somebody who who does not have really UKRI funded research his research comes from elsewhere the funding comes from elsewhere so what happens with these other aspects of mm -hmm. uh, research because um, if it's only one aspect that is supported really by by money that is the UKRI funded research that can I think create a, a new sort of higher hierarchy between publications and and researchers themselves and institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And um, 
Did you speak to anybody outside the university? Of, 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 did you speak to somebody from Octopus? Have I made that up? Or yes, I, I did have a couple of um, interviews where I talked to external um, participants, like um, Alex Freeman, who you will do an interview. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be. That, that's it's just reminding me that you'd already spoken to to Alex. So Alex Freeman. Um, we'll be interviewing on this podcast as well. We might already be there if you have a look. Sorry, Doka. So you, you spoke to Alex? Yes, I spoke to Alex and we discussed um, Octopus as, as a new platform for um, research dissemination. And uh, I also did another um, external interview with um, with someone who did a, an exhibition at the Cultural Institute at Leeds. Um, so he is the head of English in the University of Huddersfield mm -hmm. and because of his research interest and the archives available at Leeds he was um, the he, he was managing this exhibition at the Cultural Institute which is a different form of uh, public engagement and and research dissemination. Okay great um, and so you've mentioned it probably going on for 60 separate case studies now um, I did mentioned there's a few of them on the blog at the moment but when can we expect to see more of these i mean i'll probably link some in the show notes for this i think um but i know we still you're still working on them aren't you in terms of actually getting them signed off by the the interviewees and that kind of thing um i think by the time uh, this podcast episode comes out there will be probably a lot more um available on the blog post and hopefully soon after in other um, resources like uh, the University of Leeds' um, library website. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm, I'm still working on a, on a couple of uh, case studies. I will have one actually next week, and I had one yesterday as well. But um, the, a lot of the, the people I interviewed, interviewed they, they are very um, happy to help, and they are very happy to distribute the case studies and have uh, a CC by Creative Commons license on the case studies. Yeah, yeah. So as I say, yeah, but um, we will we'll be disseminating these. And we've also been lazing a little bit, haven't we, with um, UKRN? So they've released their own case studies recently that, again, I'll link in the show notes. Um, I haven't actually managed to have a look at them myself yet. Have you had much of a look at those case studies? Yes. Uh, so they're also collecting, the UKRN, UKRN is also collecting case studies on open research and uh, they also link various uh, universities open research case studies so i I'm, I'm pretty sure that ours a lot of ours will be yeah. on their website as well they're very interesting because you can really see the different approach uh, they took or different institutions took um i think a lot of ours is very in-depth while a lot of the UKRN case studies are sort of a short summary of uh, of a certain research area with little anonymized quotes from particular researchers yeah so yeah as i say they they will be linked in the show notes and uh, just to emphasize really that you know you and all the work that you and chris have been doing here at leeds and, and in liaison with my, myself and other colleagues you know we we're just exploring aren't we really what open research means in different disciplines and really trying to communicate the benefits and the challenges in in different disciplines and that kind of thing yeah um so i suppose uh we've been talking for quite a while now what's what's next for you you're you, you, you're gonna we're hoping you'll stay with us for a little while longer but uh longer term do you plan to continue working in academia is that your your long-term goal yes um as as much as um there are many issues in 
the institution uh, institutional side of academia i i love teaching i love researching i really enjoyed working in the case studies and getting to know other fields and having this other type of knowledge that not necessarily on my research subject and um and as i said i'm working on my first monograph i'm still you know participating in conferences um trying to do sort of other research as well doing other public engagement events participating in uh, various reading groups organizing conference so you know I'm, I'm kind of busy but i would um love to continue working as well in leeds and i guess some i mean you know some of that is is it open research i mean i mentioned at the, at the top that you're the co-founder of the sylvia plus society i mean you know blog posts and you know conferences i mean that's that's open research isn't it i guess and... yeah I, th I think we can definitely think about it in that way um and i'm part of a, a reading group um called um well it's it's a gothic uh, lit literary reading group called the haunted shores and we have a monthly reading group where you know everyone is invited to join and we have uh people joining uh from um from us australia some people in the uk who are um not research staff but are sort of academic support staff like like you or like me at the moment yeah, yeah. okay great well thank you very much for speaking to us today and um if people do want to get in touch with you either about sylvia plath or um uh, the supernatural or open research or the case studies um i'll make sure that your details are in the show notes associated with this recording and uh, they can find you on twitter can't yeah. they and uh various other places so we'll we'll link that in in the show notes so thanks Dorka. thanks very much thank you Nick. thank you bye 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 <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes. And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Email us at academicdev at leads.ac.uk. Thanks for listening, and here's to you and your research culture.